When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Andrew Friedman is the chef whisperer. I've known him for a few years now, and for a guy who's accomplished plenty, he is one of the nicest, most unassuming guys you will meet. He is generous in a way a lot in the media industry aren't, and I'm probably embarrassing him with this intro here on Hot Takes on a Plate on the Believe Podcast Network. But Andrew, here we are, an example of your generosity, doing a special crossover podcast with your podcast, Andrew Talks to Chefs. I want to get I want to tell a story about that generosity in a moment plus throw some hot takes your way about chefs but first I want to talk about Andrew talks to chefs. I think one of the things when it comes to any kind of creative endeavor where whether it's a podcast, a TV show like I used to have, writing a book, article whatever is you need a point of view and you need a distinct point of view. You can't just say I want to write about food period or I want to talk about food period. And I think what's made you successful is that you found that point of view, your point of view. It's chefs. I mean, it's in the title. Andrew talks to chefs. But you have delved so deep into that industry. I I almost see your podcast as sort of like what what James Lipton did with Inside the Actor's Studio. It's you're able to deep dive with chefs because you really understand that world. Well, thank you. First of all, <clears throat> Rob, thank you for all those kind words. Yes, I was. I think I was blushing. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, to me, I you know, I am the only person still, although I've been trying to populate this term for years, I'm the only person I know who refers to themselves as a chef writer, not a food writer. Um, I don't know when the last recipe I wrote. I haven't collaborated on a cookbook in probably five years, and I'm fine with that. Um, but yeah, I found my way into the chef world by accident as a collaborator. And I, for whatever reasons, I, I love that world. Um, I really love the people in it. Somewhere along the way of being a collaborator, I realized I'd gotten to know a lot of them very well. And I do think that is a distinction that I some point decided to make was that I went all in on writing and about these people. And the podcast, um, to be honest, just naturally flowed out of the kind of interviews I did for books. Um, you know, my last book, which was a book called Chef Drugs and Rock and Roll about the American chefs of the 70s and 80s. I did a little more than 200 interviews and a lot of them just naturally would, you know, I'd have a 30 minute appointment with someone and they would turn into three hour recorded interviews. And I do compare, I mean, not quality or fame or anything like that, but I 
I often do compare what I do to what James Lipton did with actors or what Mark Marin, who I'm very sad for this week, he lost his partner, uh, Lynn Shelton, a few days ago, and I'm heartbroken for him. Uh, but, you know, Mark Marin in the early days of the WTF podcast only interviewed fellow comics and, you know, grew into a much more of a generalist show. But those early shows to me were amazing. And not that I'm a fellow chef, but I did sort of think at some point, you know, I think I know these people's world well enough that I could interview them on equal footing, you know, that it could be a real dialogue and not, and not just, I didn't want to just be like a ball machine that was firing questions. I wanted to get into actual conversation. And you do that really well. And that actually segues perfectly into the story I wanted to share with the audience, because I know it's a story that you would never share yourself. And some of it you don't even probably know about, but uh, it revolves around the book release party you had for Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. And you were kind enough to invite me. And I don't think we even knew each other that well at the time. So I, I really took that as just a very, very um, generous gesture. And, you know, I walk into the party. I, I, I came by myself and I was a little bit nervous. Like, well, I know anybody or, you know, you know, those, those social moments where you're kind of like, uh, what am I walking into? And within, you know, like 30 seconds, I had someone yell, hey, restaurant hunter. And it was Drew Porin. Uh, if you don't know who Druni Porin is, Nobu, Tribeca Grill, to name a couple, uh, Batard. And uh, he turns out he watched the show. And next thing you know, we're chatting. And I ended up having him on the show. So, you know, boom, right there, a connection made by you. And then later on in the night, <laughs> um, there was, first off, I bring up the story because. It was that was that Cafe Balud. Am I am I remembering correctly? Uh, it, I'm going to mispronounce the name because I think you're actually supposed to put a lot of French mustard on it. But it's Bar Pleiades, which is this sort okay. of bar lounge, which is part of Cafe Balud in the Surrey Hotel. So yeah. Daniel Balud is is hosting this, and it's a who's who of of culinary talent. I mean, it is just like you walk in and you're like Murderer's Row, and they're there for you. And I'm going, oh, my gosh. Now, granted, a lot of them were in the book, but still, I'm going, holy cow, like Daniel Ballou is throwing a party for you. And I'm sitting there in the buffet line, which is all brought. It was it was a potluck of famous chefs, which is like insane when you think about that for a second. And I'm in line with our our, our mutual friend, Julia Sexton. And we were talking about I can't remember if it was Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm, one or the other. And this gentleman overhears us and comes over and he's like. Oh, I love Seinfeld or I, I, you know, I don't know if it was Larry David, but he loved what we were talking about. And I recognized right away it was Michael White, but I didn't, you know, you don't say, oh, hey, Michael White. Like, so we're just talking and we get to the point where we're about to get lasagna and it's Michael White's lasagna. And <laughs> so I know at this point I've got this all in my brain. So I get the lasagna and I look at him and he doesn't know. I haven't told him I know who he is. And I just go, I don't know if this lasagna is going to be any good. And he just looks at me sheepishly and kind of gives me a little head nod. He goes, oh, don't worry, man. It's good. <laughs> and it was such a great night. But again, it was your generosity of, of inviting me and, and, and just the fact that clearly these people, you know, they, they have accepted you as one of their own. And chefs can be so generous to begin with. It's one of the things I think we're learning through this pandemic. But I wanted to tell that story because, one, it's entertaining. But two, I just think that it's the kind of story you wouldn't tell about yourself. And it also shows just how involved into that world you are. And I preface that long-winded 
story to bring up something that happened in the news this week because I think your your expertise is spot on here, and that is obviously we're going through this global pandemic and restaurants are hurting, and so the White House has been meeting with, I'll, I'll throw air quotes, industry leaders um, in the restaurant industry to talk about how to help them out, and the list, um, it's not the most diverse list, the list started way back with pretty much all uh, chain CEOs, and it has added some chefs, but it's primarily uh, fine dining chefs and restaurateurs of a certain ilk. And I'm curious from you what you think about the participation of the Thomas Kellers and the Will Gadaras and uh, Sean Feeney's of the world. I'm curious what you think of it because a lot of people are slamming them for participating because of the connection with, with the Trump administration. But on the other hand, I mean, who else do you participate with right now? Like, right? Like, how do you manage that? Well, First of all, I have to ask, Rob, you may be teaching me something, although I'm not sure. Maybe I misunderstood you saying it. The, so we're talking here on May 19th. You're referring to a meeting at the White House on the 18th. I don't. Was that meeting a, an expanded version of the President's Council, or was that just a group of restaurant industry representatives? I thought it was a group of representatives one of whom, Thomas, happened to be on the president's council. Yeah, uh, you're probably right on that. Um, I guess my point is more meeting with the president in yeah, general. So, so, so taking the the labels out of it for a second, yeah, just so, me, just meeting at the White House. So this is uh, this. I have to back up to give you the answer because there's a thing I've been formulating in my head. I may actually do my first ever. Um, editorial on my show about this, or maybe my second, but my first official editorial, you know, this weekend, and I'm not going to name names because it's not about names and these are just representative people, but I was on Twitter and somebody said, you know, you know, uh, Renee Redzepi's restaurant, uh, Noma in Copenhagen is, is reopening and serving burgers, right? And the LA Times covered it and, and a, a food writer went on Twitter and said, I don't know about it. I don't really care about Noma right now. You know, anyone else feel the same way? And I thought, well, you know what? If this moment's taught us anything, it's that all restaurants have been closed, all of them, from 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 the most inexpensive, unassuming neighborhood place to the most high-end three-star Michelin place that people travel to go to, right? And I think one of the beautiful things we've seen is a sort of coming together of the industry like never before. You know, there's suddenly a desire to not only get places open again, but to actually change how they do business, change the business model, make the life better, make the business more uh, 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 fiscally responsible for everybody involved. And, you know, my new question, and this gets to the thing you just asked me about is, I don't want to hear anyone complaining anymore without them saying what should have happened instead. So I understand that the president's council that was announced a few weeks ago was shamefully underrepresented. I did yes. three shows about it that week. I did three shows that week. I'm not saying anything differently. I understand that the group that was invited to the White House was shamefully unrepresentative. Now, this is even this would have been just a small adjustment, but Tom Colicchio was quoted in the Washington Post 
talking about the group that went, that they wanted one of the reps from the Independent Restaurant uh, Coalition to be Katie Button, the, the Asheville, North Carolina chef and restaurateur. And for some reason, somebody on the, on the government end of that meeting said no to Katie. Now, I don't know what the reason was. That still would have just been one woman. It would have been another Caucasian, right? So I'm not disputing, I don't even want to say optics because it's not about the optics. It's, it is about, well, why was it only these you know, white men who were able to go there? I, that's, I totally get that. That is an issue for me as well. However, were they supposed to say no? You know, I mean, every day I see the governor of my state of New York uh, talking about how we need federal money to get through this, to pay our police and our firefighters and our nurses, right, and and open our schools and not lay off teachers. That's federal money we need. Well, that's what the restaurant industry needs. Were they not supposed to go? Look, this I is I don't. I, this is what I mean. If if you want, it's easy to snipe, but I. And it's fine to say that was an unrepresentative group, but I don't get these personal attacks on these guys. Well, again, it's like that idea of, okay, so you got on one hand, you got people saying, I don't like who was invited. But then when people accept the invitation, they are told they shouldn't. So it's like you want, so like, okay, so let's say he invited a more diverse crowd, right? And let's say they accepted. Would they then be knocked for accepting? Like, it feels like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Now, look, I think, you know, people are upset because there's a little bit of um, a little bit of ass kissing, if you will, uh, from some of these restaurateurs saying you mean very, around the table. Yes. Yes. Some yeah. effusive things. Uh, I think, you know, I don't want to be misquoted here, but I think Sean Feeney. Uh, said something to the effect of like you're one of us. You know, we consider to, to you one of Trump. us. Yeah, and so you know, I understand the frustration there, and I, I, I just try to put myself in in, in one of these restaurateurs or chefs' shoes. I think you don't need to do what Thomas Keller did and retweet that it's an honor. I don't think you need to make those kind of comments. You're one of us to to, to get what you need. I think if I were in that position, I would go. I, I would go in there. And I would just try to stick to the facts, you know, try to, you know, whether I agree with the guy politically or not, I would say, look, you care, Mr. President, about the economy. This is how it's impacting the economy and put it in a perspective that he can understand. Maybe he doesn't like to go out to eat at these kind of restaurants. You know, maybe he's a, a steak well done with ketchup kind of guy. But what he does understand, he understands the impact this whole thing can have on hotels. He has a lot of those. You point out, hey, if certain cities are culinary destinations and people aren't going to them, guess what? They're also not staying at hotels. And guess what? It's also hurting the airline industry. And guess what? A lot of those states that you need to win, they have farms, and those farms are hurting right now. And you, 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 you present that. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. Well, listen, it's very comp. To me, it's very complicated. You know, it so is. they. So they, okay, let's get past the first, first threshold and let's just stipulate for a moment, despite the problems with the makeup of the invitees, these people did the right thing by going. Okay, so now they're there. What do they want? They want to get things for the restaurant yes. industry. Okay, now it has been proven time and again that the way to this president's heart is, is flattery. It just is. We've seen a few weeks ago, he was down at the CDC and one of the top 
guy's dad, I forget his name, he had a beard, it was a piece of footage that got played a lot, made some reference to his unbelievable leadership, right? Now, do we think for a minute that guy actually felt that way? <laughs> you know, I sure don't. And most people don't, but they felt like he was probably doing that with the greater good in mind, you know? And, and you know, and I, I should also say, you know, there are some people on that group, not many actually, but there were a few people on the group who went yesterday who I'm very friendly with. Um, I, I do some work for the Welcome Conference. That's not a secret. My name is on the website. I do some writing for them sometimes. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably most close to Will Gadara of the people who spoke. But, you know, when Will was speaking and he took a moment at the beginning to just acknowledge the fact of their being there with an audience that included the president and the vice president, and he said, thank you. And from off camera, you could hear the president say, thank you, Will, twice, unsolicited. Now, that's a rare occurrence that this president does that. So... And I don't particularly, I think the thing Sean said, I'm sure somewhere someone is tweeting about it, but um, uh, you know, I, I just think that's being strategic about how to talk to this president. I do. And, and to me, uh, and I don't know the politics of the people on that stage, maybe some of them, you know, like them, I don't know. But listen, again, I, the thing I think should be the, 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 um, the yardstick for criticizing is okay what should have been done instead that you know this is a this is a moment of existential threat to the restaurant industry so should they not have gone that's that's my first question i have my issues with this president i have my issues with the with who got invited i get it but nobody was going to lay down the law to the white house right so they could have probably had the invite rescinded or they could go and do the best they could. I mean, there's a difference between playing on a championship sports team and saying, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I'm not going to the White House because nothing is on the line. Correct. There's nothing on the line. And so in that case, sure, don't go. Don't go. But in, in this case, there is a lot on the line. And whether any of us like it or not, and look, I'm sure there's people listening right now that are going, Rob, why'd you have to go political? it's impossible to avoid politics right now. It's just impossible. And we're talking about food and we're talking about restaurants and we're talking about their livelihoods. And if they're going to get help, it's going to come from the white house. It's going to come from Congress and they have to do this. They have to lobby. And so, I mean, I don't, I just don't know what the alternative is. You can go on Twitter and, and scream and yell and talk about what you don't like about, the president's policies you could talk about what you don't like about ppp and you could talk about where congress screwed up and whatever but is that going to actually get you tangible results probably not it's grandstanding uh, you know going there and get, having a meeting might get you something i'm not saying it will i mean look i'm not saying that all the actors here are acting in good faith if you know what i'm saying but it's the only route you have right now. So why not take your shot? I, I just, I don't know. I think, I think people are just so fired up and, and I understand why, but you got to do what you got to do. Right. Yeah. That's how I look at it. I mean, I, I, like, I think your comparison to the sports team, you know, electing to turn down an invitation is a very good counterpoint. Cause I would agree with you. There is nothing at stake. I mean, maybe some people don't watch or maybe some people don't buy tickets, you know, uh, people who are really have really strong feelings about it. But right now there's a lot at stake and maybe it helped. 
maybe it helped. You know, if there's a new package announced or something that's specifically done with the restaurant industry in mind, are people going to still take shots at these guys for going? I mean, I, I don't know. I just think that's, this is not, this to me is a time where it's all to me about pragmatism. It's all pragmatism to me right now. Absolutely. Well, listen, here on Hot Takes at a Plate, you, the listener, get to eavesdrop on the ultimate food fights as I debate my culinary world friends and other eating enthusiasts in their areas of expertise. And since we've been going through this global pandemic, we've been kind of sometimes putting the food fights off to the side or later in the show because there's just pressing stuff happening in the world that we got to talk about. And that's one of these times. But now we're going to get into that. And Andrew, since you are the chef whisperer, I want to throw some hot chef takes at you. Your job is to tell me I'm right or tell me I'm wrong and why. You ready? I'm ready. All right. So the first off, and this kind of ties into your book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. For years, chefs, they didn't get the credit they deserved for their creativity and their hard work and their imprint on society. And then as food media grew and there were all these you know, food festivals and TV channels and blogs appeared on the scene, chefs became celebrities. And they were finally, rightfully celebrated for what they did. But then I feel like something changed. I feel like, you know, over the last, I don't know how many years, a lot of people are, they're forgetting what a chef does to begin with. <laughs> and they're getting into it, a lot of them, for the celebrity. And I think some people have gotten credit maybe as celebrity chefs that maybe didn't really earn it their stripe, so to speak. And I think during this pandemic, we're, we're kind of hitting the reset button a little bit and maybe reassessing putting chefs on too high of a pedestal. And I, I think at this point, there might be a little bit of a celebrity chef revolt, if you will. So I think maybe we're going to kind of shift. I think, you know, at one point, chefs didn't get enough credit. Maybe now they're getting a little too much credit in popular culture, if you will. Maybe they're being put on too high a pedestal. So tell me I'm, I'm right, tell me I'm wrong, that there's going to be a little bit of a celebrity chef revolt. I think, uh, whew, this is a yes or no, right? <laughs> uh, I guess I think if I have to say yes or no, I think the answer is probably yes. Um, however, I do think that uh, people who have shown themselves to be... Um, useful in this moment are going to be either affected not at all or elevated even higher. You know, Guy Fieri, who I guess, do we call Guy Fieri a chef? I guess we don't. Uh, no, he's, you know, look, I mean, look, and that's another thing. I think the, the people get chef and, and cook confused, right? Like chef, yeah. chefs are managers. Guy Fieri is a manager. That's what well, he does. Chefs, chefs run kitchens, right? They do, but they, but they're also. I think when you're talking about celebrity chefs, they're not in their kitchens every day. They, they recipe develop and they train people and they manage. They, they run empires. That's what they do. Yeah, but there are those who also do cook, right? Like Grant Ackett's is still in his kitchens. Yes, I mean there are right. There are these. There are people who do do yes. that. Uh, but you know, you look at somebody like Jose Andres. You know his yes. his. It's the wrong term, but his stock, his halo has only gotten wider. You know, uh, Guy Fieri, there, I, there's this article that was just written. He's raised like over $20 million for yeah. people in the industry. I mean, he's not going to be, he's not going to be diminished by this. He's going to be elevated by this. And this is someone who, to be honest, has gotten like zero respect from, you know, the, 
the the kind of high end, you know, quote unquote respectable restaurant chefs out there. Um, uh, but everyone I know who's ever worked with that with him on a TV show or something really likes Guy Fieri. I've never met him. Um, I think this notion of just um, you know, the kind of knee-jerk, genuflecting, uh, automatic reverence for someone in a white jacket and, you know, in a toque, uh, is that going to come down a little bit? I think maybe it will. Um, I've actually been wondering if, you know, along with this reset people are talking about in the industry, if, if that might even happen internally, you know, if we might see a little bit yes of the sort of we chef culture uh, in kitchens, you know, if, if kitchens along with, you know, screaming at people and throwing saute pans that went out a couple of years ago or started to fade out. I wonder if we're going to start seeing people, you know, say, you know, call me, you know, call me Andrew. Don't call me chef. You know, I wonder if we're going to see a kind of a more humanizing of the, of the environment. You know, we got past the brutal environment. I wonder if it's going to become a more human environment. I think you're going to see more chefs saying, don't call me chef, call me cook. Or that. Connect right. it to the food. Don't connect it to this sort of omnipresent godlike figure. Or to just the hierarchy. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I also think, you know, look, I hate the term sellout. I, I just hate it. You know, I don't think becoming a quote unquote celebrity chef is selling out. I think this this idea that chefs need to be chained to the stove for 30, 40 years doing thankless work and never capitalize on their personalities or their ideas is is just absolutely ludicrous. However, I think where you draw that line is when they capitalize at the expense of others. You know, I think and I think that's where this is this kind of chef revolt is kind of feeding into right now where, you know, there's this optic of and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but there are chefs out there right now lobbying to save their industry and rightfully so. But a lot of these chefs are multimillionaires. And their employees right now are collecting unemployment. And whereas some people see that as they're, they're lobbying for their employees and for their industry, other people say, oh, cry me a river, you're rich. And again, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but that's an optic is that, you know, why should we listen to the David Changs of the world cry me a river when David Chang is, is set? And meanwhile, such and such doesn't have health care or doesn't have this. Again, these are optics. I'm not saying... You know, that's reality, but those are the optics of it. And I think there's an optic thing where people are saying, why are these rich people crying? Yeah, but I think, look, yes, I'm sure that applies to some people, but there's also a lot of these people who are doing things, uh, you know, in the organizations that they're a part of or these efforts that are making that they probably would do better for themselves if they just did their own work, you know, their own lobbying behind the scenes or their yeah. own fundraising. Will Goddard does not have a restaurant right now, and he's one of the people who created the Independent Restaurant Coalition. What's he got to get out of it? He doesn't even own a restaurant. He's doing it for the industry. I mean, you know, uh, what- Again, I'm not time? talking reality. I'm talking optics here. Yes, but I'm just pushing back on it because I do think a lot of these people uh, who have a lot of uh, pers you know, money in the game uh, uh, would, you know, in theory- would do maybe better for themselves with an everybody for themselves uh, approach uh, and just worried about their own fiefdom. You know, I think maybe they would be do, maybe they would do better. I think, I, I think I go back to that first thing I said about people who are like, I don't care about Noma, you know? Uh, and listen, I've never been to Noma. I've never been to Copenhagen. I, to be honest, I it's can't a wonderful city. The, I can't afford the trip. I got two teenagers, you know? Um, but 
you know, to me, the, the beautiful moment here to be recognized is this kind of coming together of all strata of the industry. And I don't mean strata like one's better than the other. I mean, let's say price points, right? Level of formality. Um, everybody, this industry that's never coalesced in any real way is all of a sudden doing that. And I think beyond survival, Rob, the other thing to me is that this is amazing. You know, first we had the term pivot, you know, that, mm -hmm. that came around. And then the last three weeks, four weeks, all of a sudden, there's another word that we're hearing all the time, reset. You know, this idea that we want to make the industry better than it's ever been, that we want to fix this dysfunction. Um, that is kind of amazing that, you know, at a time when they're at this existential threat, they actually want to take steps to not just reopen, but to actually address things that have never been addressed in this industry that go back generations. So I think, and I just think that pointing out um, who makes more and who's got more on the line and all of this, I, I get all of those feelings, but I, I don't see, I, I just don't see, any, I don't see universally, I don't see a lot of proof of disingenuousness. I mean, look, it's the hospitality industry, and I think to be good in the hospitality industry, you have to be hospitable, and that's what a lot of these people are. So it's, I think we're, it's a confusing time. I think people are trying to figure out a lot right now. I think people are feeling vulnerable. I think that is translating, but I think at the end of the day, I think conversations probably shouldn't be had on Twitter. They should probably be had as conversations because that's where the nuance is and i know that i host a show called hot takes on a plate and that <laughs> hot takes are supposed to be damn it this is how it's done but it, the show is a little bit of a send-up on hot takes nuance is important um last hot take i want to throw at you when it comes to chefs is about what chefs get in the spotlight obviously it starts with the gatekeepers the media and you know for too long there was this sort of snobbery and eurocentric approach to which chefs got anointed royalty and that's starting to change but in order to change food media not only needs to be more diverse but it has to be willing to look beyond places with strong pr teams and get out of the echo chamber and not all be telling similar stories at once i think that's a frustration i've had for many years is that there is an echo chamber and look i get it i get that if you are a national um, food critic for a magazine or whatever, you, you got a limited budget. You're going to go to the same, you know, often to the same big cities because you get more bang for your buck. You know, if you go to L.A., you're going to you can hit X amount of restaurants. If you go to a great place in Montana, you, you might not. But you see these lists, you see all it's the same restaurants over and over. And I just have to question in a country this big, like. You know, even though the restaurants are getting more diverse, it's still the same restaurants we're talking about. And I feel like there's this media echo chamber that creates sort of celebrity chefs and acclaimed chefs. And I don't know how we, we break that echo chamber, but I feel like that's one of the most important things we could do. Tell me I'm right. Tell me I'm wrong. No, I agree with you 100 percent. And this to me, you know, I think this all I don't know if this is your brilliant design, Rob, but this all weaves together really well. But, you know, this goes, this to me is, you know, you mentioned, you know, the counter example of the sports team that declines an invitation to the White House. Well, 
you know, to me, this is the kind of work that could still be going on. Uh, you know what? Instead of somebody picking on people who said yes to this invitation to go to the White House, I think the, that person, someone who's inclined to do that, who is a food writer, why don't you go do a profile of one of the people you're talking about who's underrepresented? That would be a better use of time. You know, uh, this is a huge problem that persists. You know, I, uh, I have no sense of time anymore, but several months ago, uh, you know, podcasters, most of them, they don't, you don't really share your, your listener numbers your download numbers. So I, I, I went in and I Photoshopped out the actual numbers, but I, so at the time I'd probably run a little over, or maybe around a hundred episodes of my show. Okay. And uh, I, I put a graph of the top 10 episodes by download on Instagram, and they were all white, all 10 of them. Now, I've had guests of, you name it, whatever background, sexual orientation, uh, uh, generational different, you know, generational uh, diversity, uh, and it was stunning to me that, you know, all 10 of my top shows ever were white people and only two were headlined by women. Uh, so I put that on Instagram and my point was my number of subscribers doesn't change week to week. People obviously were making a decision to not download and listen to episodes featuring minority guests. Can I guess uh, why? Or can I can I posit a, a hypothesis as to why? Sure. I think people, when they're listening to a show where it really revolves, you know, it's it's about the guest, right? Like you're coming to hear this person speak. They want to hear names they know, which goes back to what I was, the point I was making at the beginning. Who ha Who's been propped up, right? Like you're going out there and making the effort to say, hey, this chef here, maybe you haven't heard of them, but they're a real culinary dynamo and maybe it's an Asian woman, right? But if that Asian woman hasn't been propped up by the food media, the average listener doesn't recognize the name, they skip. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, well, I'll never know the real answer. I mean, I'll never know the answer, right? But that's, a, that's obviously a decent hypothesis. What was interesting to me is somebody made a comment about it, you know, like they thought that I was picking on my, Listeners, and I've been very careful in my post to say I'm not criticizing my listeners, and I'm also not disparaging the guests who are on that list of top ten. I mean, they're huge names. You know, there's I mean, Tony Bourdain was one of them, and uh, the, you know, the great Patrick O'Connell was one of them, and I mean, big names. But um, my my so anyway, I took it offline. I got into a, a direct message conversation with this listener, and I said, you know, I'm not criticizing, but I'm asking people to think about why they're making the choice they're making. And they said something to the effect of what you're saying, which is that they listen to the people that they know. And I said, right, but then you have to think about why is it, it's a vicious circle, right? Like, yeah. why is it that you know these people and don't know those people? Well, and goes, how, will you, how will you get to know it them? It goes back to celebrity culture, right? It goes back yeah. to celebrity culture. It goes back to, <laughs> I saw that guy on Netflix. You know, I saw that guy on whatever TV show or whatever, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, you know, these chefs have become legitimate celebrities where people see them and they get nervous. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've seen people 
I mean, I've seen people meet for sure Thomas Keller, uh, you know, who, who, you know, could barely get a word out of their mouth. I mean, to speak to him, it's amazing. Uh, to counter your point about podcast listenership, when, when I had the TV show, when I had Restaurant Hunter, I made diversity a huge point of the show and diversity of all types, diversity of cuisines, diversity of characters, diversity of geography, price points, you name it, because everybody eats and they eat differently. And I wanted the show to represent the communities that it was airing in. And, you know, I think some people who live outside of Westchester see it one way, but Westchester is a pretty diverse place in a lot of ways. You know, there are urban areas with diversity. And so I always found it interesting that a lot of the segments I did that were of underrepresented communities were actually the ones that got shared the most on social media when I would post them because people were like, wow, I see myself, you know, like, holy cow. Like, I, w I remember one time I was on Long Island. I think I was doing a segment on the only Filipino restaurant on Long Island at the time, and it got shared hundreds of times because, look, it's us. And, I mean, besides being morally right, it could be a good business opportunity, too, to, to give an audience that is underserved something because we are in a fragmented media landscape right now. And so it's not about necessarily reaching everyone because you're just not. The days of a show like Cheers or Seinfeld drawing 40 or however many million people to the TV screen, those days are over. It's about getting a loyal audience and keeping them. Yeah, I mean, it's funny what you say about hearing from, you know, I to this, it still, I still happens. And on the one hand, I feel moved by it. And on the other hand, I feel sad, saddened by it. You know, I do hear from people when I have, black guests on when, especially if the shows get a little political, you know, uh, if I have Indian guests on or, you know, and, and I get these notes from people of that person's same shared cultural background. And I get these notes of, you know, thank you for doing that. You know, and I'm like, hey, you know, I appreciate that they, that they heard it, that they wanted to listen to it, that they felt compelled to send me a note. But on the other hand, it makes me sad that it's 2020 and people still, it's still seen as somehow un unusual that that would happen. You know, um, there was a piece in the New York Times, what was it last year? I think it was last year. Uh, I think it was 17 black chefs around the country, you know? Um, and, you know, on the one hand, I was happy for all those people to get attention, but I was talking to one of those chefs one day, uh, not on an interview, just personally somewhere. And I said, you know, we started talking about all this stuff. And I said, can I just ask you, I felt like that article was, you know, I'm happy for everybody who was in it, but it also made me a little bit sad that that piece could be written in 2019. And the person said to me, oh, you mean because it could have just been a piece about 17 rising chefs around the country yep. and we just all happened to be black. And I said, you know, but that didn't need to necessarily be mentioned. And I said, yes, I would, I, I the, 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 the Andrew Friedman of, you know, 2000 would like to think that by 2020, a piece like that would not be necessary, but it obviously still is. Look, I had somebody once reach out to me, a viewer of Restaurant Hunter and say, hey, why don't you do a whole episode on female chefs? And my response was, I don't want to do a whole episode on female chefs because I want women to be as big a part of this show on the regular that I don't need to do an episode on female chefs. Yeah, I, I call think it ghettoizing, I, I call it ghettoizing the guests. I mean, look, when you when you do, I've seen publications do 
you know, issues on women chefs. And then guess what? For the next 11 months out of the year, they forget them. It's like, all right, we did that. Check. We checked the box. And I'm like, no, I'd, I'd rather just make female chefs and restaurateurs a, a, a regular part of what I'm doing so that you don't need me to do that. They're just part of the fabric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I'm, in, I'm the same way, by the way. Listen, Andrew, thank you so much for the, the thoughtful comments as always the the thoughtful insight into the industry and the world at large and and for the time and again andrew talks to chefs is the podcast it's a fantastic listen if you are into the culinary world there are some great deep dives he is the chef whisperer andrew friedman and if this is your first time tuning in make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast listening app of choice and if you like what you heard please rate us five stars of course you can leave a comment too And share with your friends. And if you want to get in touch with me personally, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Rob Patron TV. Hot Takes on a Plate is part of the Believe Podcast Network. That's B-L-E-A-V. You can find them at B-L-E-A-V.com. I'm Rob Patron. Till next time. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.